You are listening to 89.5 FM KOPN Columbia, Mid-Missouri's source for in-depth news, diverse talk and music of the world. It is so much more than radio. It is your community radio on the web at kopn.org. And this is Speaking of the Arts. Good morning and welcome to Speaking of the Arts, Mid-Missouri's only in-depth weekly art show. My name is Diana Moxon and I do hope you are able to snuggle up with the radio for the next hour as we take a tour of the arts. A new study was published this week in the Journal of Experimental Social Psychology that states that attending live theatre improves empathy, changes attitudes and leads to pro-social behaviour. The authors from the universities of Cambridge, Stanford and Southern California gave surveys to 1,600 theatre-goers either before or after watching three different plays to measure what differences attending live theatre had made. The plays all involved characters who are not frequently shown on theatre stages and, no surprise to anyone who loves theatre, people left the shows feeling more empathetic to the groups of people portrayed, they shifted their opinions on the socio-political issues portrayed and were more likely to give charitable donations to causes both referred to in the play and even unrelated charities. The bottom line, of course, is how important the arts are in providing us with a way of standing in someone else's shoes for a short while to see their perspectives and, in so doing, to become a more empathetic member of society. Storytelling is vital to who we are and arts education is a vital component in children's development. So let's not cut arts funding to schools. And it is that idea of storytelling that is really central to today's show, which is a true potpourri of the arts. We have a theatre visit to learn about a play called What Same-Sex Marriage Means to Me, an art tour of works that celebrate our state of Missouri, a festival which highlights some of the ways Africans in the African diaspora perform their cultural stories, and the climax of a literary festival featuring two renowned poets who are able to transport people syllable by syllable. Let's start with theatre. A new one-person, one-act show opened last night at Columbia's new Farnham and Bias Playhouse called What Same-Sex Marriage Means to Me, written and performed by Andrew Black. The show is framed as a Cinderella story. Can our protagonist, a 64-year-old gay man, be able to express his personal brilliance given the forsaken circumstances of gay life in America for most of the past 60-plus years? And the protagonist is here this morning to tell us a little more about what same-sex marriage means to him. Good morning, Andy. Hey, Diana. How are you? I am well. Now, when we first met, you introduced me to the idea of the seven basic story plots, which were formulated at length by a writer called Christopher Booker in his 2004 tome titled Why We Tell Stories. And I am curious why you see your story as a rags-to-riches story rather than an overcoming the monster story? Wow, that's a really, really interesting question. <laughs> um, 
You know what the the uh, the metaphysical question that goes with the overcoming the monster story is? You know, can I overcome the monster? And when I teach that plot in my screenwriting class, I use the movie Jaws because one of the characteristics of the monster and the monster stories is that typically the monster is completely unconscious. The monster has no consciousness, no volition. It basically is their existence is monstrous. So the uh, the call of the hero when they overcome the monster story is to defeat a foe which is almost neutral in its evil in a certain way. <laughs> okay. I mean, the shark doesn't really know what he's doing. The shark is just trying to stay alive. You know, he happens to be eating whatever human beings are in its way. So um, what I think about the circumstances that I had to overcome is I feel that they're much more nuanced than that. One of the, the uh, historical characters that I talk about is Joe McCarthy, Senator McCarthy, uh, who waged a campaign against homosexuality in the 1950s. Now, I, I fundamentally believe that Joe McCarthy had reasons to do what he was doing, and there was a certain extent to which he believed he was doing the right thing. Um, I don't agree, and I think that it, there's a lot of question as to whether or not he was diabolical in his own way, and yet he was a human being. Right. So I prefer to contextualize the time in which I grew up. And I also prefer to give people the benefit of the doubt and to believe that human beings, unlike sharks or dragons, <laughs> are a little more nuanced than that. And that to cast Joe McCarthy or any of these other people, you know, the Supreme Court, you know, Chief Justice Bordenberger, some of the other individuals that I talk about as monsters feels unfair. <laughs> I was thinking of them as a as a group, kind of as a monstrous group that you had to overcome rather than an individual. <laughs> yeah, I, and I don't really – and I think that to cast – I guess another way to put it is in the overcoming the monster story, the monster is often very one-dimensional. And I think that to cast the adversaries that I've had to deal with in my life as one-dimensional – uh, makes me seem one-dimensional as well. <laughs> I think that it's actually more powerful to tell the story in a more nuanced way, right? So the idea that the Cinderella story, um, now of course in Cinderella you do have the wicked stepmother and you do have the evil stepsisters. It's not as if there aren't adversaries and antagonists in the Cinderella story. And yet I think that story appealed to me a little bit more as a way of framing and I like that question, the question that goes with the rags to riches story or the Cinderella story, as you called it. You know, can the uh, protagonist manifest her or his inner brilliance given the forsaken circumstances of life as it's presenting itself to her or to him? And so that really puts the focus more on the um, protagonist and the choices that she or he makes along the way in order to answer the major dramatic question. And the focus of my one-man show is really on me. <laughs> well, give us an overview of the show. Tell us a little bit about it. Well, the I, I was inspired to write this show. I saw a, a play in New York a couple of years ago, right before the whole pandemic came down. It was called What the Constitution Means to Me, and it was written by a playwright named Heidi Schreck. And she performed it as well. Now, I have to say, I was a little skeptical going <laughs> to see that show because it didn't sound that theatrical to me. 
it was like one person on a stage telling a story, and I wasn't really sure that it was theater. And I had I was kind of a snob about the whole idea at the time of one person telling her story and calling it a play. But the show had been very, very well reviewed, and I had an extra night in town, and I thought, well, I'll just go see this and see what it's all about. Well, I if I you know I hope that I can meet Heidi Schreck one day because she's fantastic. And the kind of the setup is that when Heidi Schreck was sixteen, she was making speeches about what the Constitution means to her in contests to raise scholarship money. So about 30 years went by between the time she was 16 and the time she was performing her show. And the show talked about how her attitude about the Constitution of the United States had changed in the intervening 30 years between the time she was making those speeches and the time she was performing her her program, her telling her story. And I was really, really struck by that. And it gave me a new kind of artistic model that I didn't have before. And I thought, you know, I could do the same thing. Now, in 1953, which was the year that my parents got married, Dwight Eisenhower, who was president of the United States at that time, signed an executive order which authorized the federal government to investigate the lives of the employees of the federal government. And if they were found to be a variety of different things they were looking for, but one of the things they were looking for was homosexuality. Sexuality. If they were found to be gay, they were going to be terminated, right? Now, last year in June of 2020, the Supreme Court of the United States ruled that making decisions with respect to people's employment based on their sexual identity was unconstitutional. So in the 67 years between the time that Dwight Eisenhower signed that executive order in June of last year, the United States of America went through an incredible sea change in its attitude towards gay people and same-sex marriage. So what I decided to do in the same way that Heidi Schreck used a 30-year period to talk about her relationship to the Constitution, what I decided to do was to take that 64, 67 years and use it to frame my relationship to my own sexual identity and to same-sex marriage. And, you know, so I talk a little bit about all the events of that period of time. Of course, I have to be selective in what I talk about because I only have 90 minutes But I mean, I talk about some of the culture, I talk about some of the politics, some of the legal issues, and of course, I talk about the impact that all of that had on me. And then at the end, I get married. (laughs) (laughs) You know, and that's that's part of what makes it a Cinderella story. You know, Jaws, Sheriff Brody does not marry the shark. The handsome prince. (laughs) You found your handsome prince. (laughs) I did indeed. You know, so there's a kind of a happy Cinderella ending to my story, you know. So I think that's another one of the reasons that I like the uh, rags to riches frame. Well, one of the main characters, or maybe not characters, maybe one of the main forces in your story is Christianity and the personal battle you had to fight between the way of life it directed for you and the way of life you wanted to lead. And I'm always curious about why people remain attached to a religion that persecutes them to one degree or another. Can you talk a little bit about how you assimilated those two way of life boxes? Well, you know, I have to say I didn't, uh, I wouldn't say that I did it very successfully. You know, when I was about 20 years old, I began to have two separate problems. I was raised in a Christian tradition. And I have to say the Christian tradition that I was raised in was a rather positive one. It was really about love. It was the kind of love your neighbor as yourself. I mean, Jesus Christ is very much the center of that. 
But a lot of it was about the New Testament God, not kind of the Old Testament God who was you know, like punishing people and smiting everyone. So one of the things that happened, though, when I got to be about 20 years old is I started having two different sets of problems with Christianity. Now, one of them had to do with the fact that I was identifying as a gay man, and there's a lot of language in the Bible which suggests that path was not going to be okay with anybody in Christian circles. But there were other issues as well. I started to have what I would call intellectual problems with Christianity. And I was raised in a tradition that I was taught to believe that every single verse, every line in the Bible was literally true. And I'd begun not to feel comfortable with that idea. There were There's like flood traditions in, in many different religions. I mean, the idea that Noah and the Ark was a literal retelling of a very specific historical event that had happened to a man named Noah began not to make much sense to me. And there's a variety of other kinds of things that I was reading in the Bible where there are two separate accounts of the same event, but they're told in different ways. I, I just couldn't reconcile some of those things. You know, what happened, Diana, though, was I didn't really work with that. I didn't stay with that. I didn't say, you know, I have a problem with this. I have an intellectual issue. I may need to rethink about the way that I think about this faith tradition. I may need to come to a new relationship. Because of the other issue, which had to do with my sexual identity, I just abandoned the whole thing. And if I were going to critique my approach at the time, I would kind of say that I took the easy way out or I took the coward's way out because it was actually easier just to let go of it all than it was to kind of wrestle it to the ground and say, okay, I've got some problems with this. Is there some way for me to extract elements of it that are use could be useful and positive for me and then ignore or leave alone the things that are no longer working for me? And one of the things that I talk about in the play or in my show is the importance of having a code of ethics that governs the way you live and the choices you make. And the fact of the matter is that Christianity, as a, I'll call it a philosophy rather than a religion, there's a lot of philosophy in Christianity. And a lot of the philosophy of Christianity is actually really, 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 really good. I was talking before about loving your neighbor as yourself. One of my favorite verses in the Bible is, if I speak with the tongue of men and angels but have not love, I am but a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. There's a lot of really great, and it's stories like the Good Samaritan, I I mean, there is a lot of information in the Bible about how to live a positive, healthy life that is really, really, really useful. So I think the challenge or the question becomes for anyone, as you, as you grow in life, it's how do I define or find or uh, build a philosophy of life that is going to support my ability to be effective as a human being? in the way that I need to be effective in terms of my interactions with myself, with other people, and with the world around me. And because I was given Christianity as kind of a starting point, and a lot of it is actually pretty good, what has happened in later in my life, I've kind of come back around to it. And I've said here, can I take sort of what can I take that's good? What can I take that's going to be useful? What can I take that's going to support me as a human being? And then I may need to set other parts of it aside. And, and I think, you know, your question about how do I reconcile these two parts of it, the parts I think that are philosophically positive and the parts that are dark and negative, in a certain way, I think that that reflects kind of a microcosm of life in general. 
In most cases, there's a duality. <laughs> there are things about situations that we like and things about situations that we don't like. There are things that are good. Unfortunately, there are sometimes things that are diabolical. There's sharks. There's things that are diabolical or evil. And then the path we have to choose is how do we leverage or harvest the positive and the good? And then what kind of a relationship do we create for ourselves with the things that are negative? And so I think that where I am right now at my age and at this stage of my life is rather than continuing to reject the philosophical ideas in Christianity that I think are useful, I feel that I have found a way to embrace them. And that doesn't mean that I don't have to take a stance on some of the other stuff that's in there that I don't think is helpful. But I think that um, has challenged me to kind of be more awake and alive philosophically in a way that I think I benefit from. Well, there is a ton of other things that I could ask you about the play, but let's just encourage people to go and see it. So if people want to come and see the show, how do they get tickets? Well, we have a, a ticket link on Eventbrite. And if you go to Eventbrite and you do a search for what same-sex marriage means to me, it will take you to our page and all the information. We have performances. We have a performance tonight, Friday night. We have a performance on tomorrow night, Saturday night. We have a performance on uh, matinee on Sunday. And I'm on Facebook. Uh, if you want to follow me on Facebook, Andrew Black, Columbia. And there's information in my uh, Facebook feed about the show as well. And, and you can click on the links there to get tickets. And the Farnham and Bias Playhouse, I think there's also a link on there to buy tickets too. And, and the Farnham and Bias Playhouse, we should say, is in what people maybe used to remember as Cherry Street Artisans. It's on the corner of Cherry and South 9th Street down in the lower level. Okay, well, we're out of time. Andrew Black's One Person, One Act show can be seen tonight and tomorrow at 7.30 and Sunday a matinee at 2 p.m. And as I said, they'll be at the Farnham and Bias Playhouse and you can find tickets at farnhambiasplayhouse.com or, as Andy said, on Eventbrite and search for what same-sex marriage means to me. Andy, I'm so looking forward to seeing your... I keep wanting to call it a play, but it's a show. I want to see your show. Fantastic. <laughs> and I think you're coming tomorrow night. Is that right? We are. So we'll see you then. Thank you so much, Andy. Okay, very good. Thank you. On August the 10th, Missouri will celebrate the 200th anniversary of its entry to the Union as the 24th state. And this year, there are multiple projects taking place across the state to commemorate the anniversary, from a bicentennial time capsule to a bicentennial chessboard, along with a prairie foundation project in Pettis County, a statewide mural project, a historical documentary, six new works of contemporary classical chamber music, a bicentennial quilt and a travelling art exhibit called Missouri Art Now, which is currently at the State Historical Society here in Columbia. And here to tell us more about it is Beth Pike, the Senior Strategic Communications Associate for the Bicentennial. Welcome to Speaking of the Arts, Beth. Well, thank you so much. It's wonderful to be here and on KOPN. That is quite the title you have there. <laughs> How big is the team that is rolling out the Bicentennial? Well, we're actually a very small team, to be quite <laughs> honest. There's only four staffers, so but we do have long titles. But then again, we're kind of affiliated with the university in the state of Missouri, so we tend to have longer titles, right? <laughs> How many of all of these projects, these art and, and non-art projects, are you personally involved with for the Bicentennial? 
Well, um, quite a few. So uh, just to let you know, we have over 200 events happening around the state. And so there's a team of four of us that work full time for the Bicentennial. And so we're just trying to help kind of manage these, um, giving different communities, which are taking on a lot of these projects themselves, giving them some support in terms of ideas for news releases. We, we prepare news releases for them. We advertise on our uh, website. We do social media. So we're really here kind of as a support team, giving them feedback, ideas on how they can make their event really special and bring people in and help celebrate it. So those are a lot of things that we're doing around the state. But in addition, we're also organizing some of our own events. For instance, we have this Missouri Explorers program, and uh, we've even talked about doing some kind of an art walk with it. But where you basically tour different parts of the state and you can earn a badge for traveling and seeing different things on the itinerary. So it's kind of a way for people to get out of the house, maybe take kind of a staycation here in Missouri, not travel too far during the pandemic, and see some things that they haven't seen, both uh, cultural and historic significant places here in Missouri. So that is something that's going on, and that's something we are organizing. Um, We're also getting ready to organize, um, or we are organizing a festival called Together for 21 Fest, which will be at the State Historical Society's Center for Missouri Studies and on the MU campus. And that's going to be something, uh, if we have time on this program, I'll talk more about about it, but uh, but certainly we're going to be having uh, visual arts uh, will be definitely part of that festival as well as music, lectures, and there'll be something really for for all family members to attend. And some of that will be live streamed because we just don't know where we'll be at with the bicentennial. But uh, the other thing we've been uh, been opening our doors to is this uh, exhibit that you were talking about, which is the bicentennial celebration titled Missouri Art Now, and that's the juried exhibition that is showing paintings and and just all kinds of works of art, photography, uh, there's sculpture, there's mixed media, ceramics, all from different parts of the state. And that is right now that is open for visitors to come to the Center for Missouri Studies on Tuesdays through Friday when we're open, our art gallery from 10 to 4.30 p.m. And just see some of the works from people all over the state of Missouri as they thought about how Missouri's bicentennial meant to them in a visual form and expressed that art. Well, the show, the Missouri Art Now Project, is a collaboration between five arts organizations. So you have the Spiva Art Center for the Arts in Joplin, the Hannibal Arts Council, the Albert Kemba Museum of Art in St. Joseph, and the Arts Council of Southeast Missouri, and the Post Art Library, which is also Joplin-based. How come mid-Missouri isn't represented in the collaborating bodies? <laughs> well, I think I think when they started it out, the, the groups got together, and they did divide the region up, included Columbia. So, in fact, we have two artists who submitted that are in their work was selected because from what I understand, there were 400 entries and then they had to choose 60 works, but they did want to make sure that they represented all regions of the state. So Columbia is grouped in uh, one of the regions and there's two artists who are, their work is on display. One is my uh, friend, John Fennell, who did a beautiful acrylic painting called Wet Fields in Spring. So it's a very familiar landscape for people who are in Missouri are going to recognize it. And of course, recognize John's paintings and how he he goes about his art. Um, Another one is Bethany Irons. She did a digital illustration, uh, Still Life in Columbia, which uh, is really powerful. 
powerful. It's it's really gives me a feel of the pandemic. It shows cleaning products. Uh, there's a plastic bag. There is like a calendar on a set date that might have been on a desk calendar. So that is also part of the exhibit as well. So Columbia is featured. There's also an artist in Jeff City. So we do have Central Missouri. I think it just probably it's a situation where they probably had four or five people already collaborating and it was going to be, you know, if they took art centers from every town in the in the state, it might uh, might have taken a little bit longer to pull this together in terms of having a lot of different different collaborators. But but they certainly did include Columbia and Min Missouri as part of it. I did notice those two, John Fennell. I am a fan of John Fennell. In fact, I have one of his works on the wall behind me. He's Lucky People you. will recognize his work from Art in the Park, from the Columbia Art League, from Boone County Art Show. I think he is a familiar, his work is very familiar and liked around town. But it did seem like I was looking geographically. It was a little bit swayed towards the southwest. There were more artists from the southwest part of the state than anywhere else. But I'm guessing that, you know, the aim was to, create or choose a body of 60 works that represented as many different counties and parts of the state as possible. Exactly. And and that's that's exactly what the organizers told me. So that was really important because they did have to pick 60. And and maybe if they were just picking 60 in one region, it would look a lot different. But because they were Mm. trying to pick artists from all over the state. They told me they divided up into four different regions, kind of quadrants, and then tried to make sure that those were represented, which if you come into our art gallery, it sounds like you've been there. You've seen it, right? I have. Well, I have found after a bit of hunting, I found a PDF Ah. of the works (laughs) online, which was not easy to find. I thought it'd be a little more straightforward. Um, And I have to say it wasn't quite what I expected. I mean, it's a beautiful show, but I thought there would be that they the prompt to the artists would have been to create works that speak specifically about the state. But that wasn't always the case. There certainly are lots of beautiful landscapes and images that are very Missouri-centric. But can you talk a little bit about what they were looking for in that jury process and what the call for art was? You know, I'm not familiar exactly what the prompts were, but I was told that it was to be more Missouri specific and to give us that snapshot of what these artists envision our state. And kind of going back to that theme, it's probably why my favorite one in the in the group is really Bison Hunt, which Brian Haynes did of Washington, Missouri, and is a well-known artist, regional artist as well. And he did this acrylic it brings me back to the days before statehood and it really spoke to me as to what Missouri must have been like before we became a state um and I don't know that one really speaks to me and I feel like that one's very much part of the bicentennial because it says it says Missouri and so that was one that I felt that was just beautiful it's a winter scene and I just really enjoy looking at that one of course Brian is really a master at what he does so it's it's a lovely lovely painting and um but you're right. Some of the other ones, I, you know, I'm trying to figure out where they tie Missouri into it, some of the abstract ones, and I'm not really sure. I do think a lot of people were influenced because of the pandemic. Um, you know, I'm looking at one from Amy Frisia from Lee's Summit, and it was Hold On Through the Dark Spaces. And so I felt like there were some, there were some really strong images through it. And there's the one with Annie Campbell of Springfield. It was non-consensual. It's an oil on canvas. And 
Yeah, you probably know it. Very. So I'm kind of wondering if the pandemic had a lot of influence on the artists as to what they submitted or what works they were they were doing, you know, in the past years. So I can't help but think that has a lot weighed into a lot to what um, what we're seeing up here. But it is a real collage of different pieces. And I will say Greg Thompson just did a really nice job displaying it in our art gallery. He does a really good job when it comes to setting up our different exhibits. And uh, I think the way he has it set up in our studio is is really, really interesting and, and really well done. So it's definitely worth coming in and checking it out and just kind of seeing where artists are in different parts of the state with their work this year. Moving away from the Missouri Art Now show, can you talk a little bit about a couple of the other art-focused bicentennial projects? I'm thinking maybe the mural. That is something that is also moving around Missouri. Is that correct? And then people in different cities can can be part of it. Right. And it's come to Columbia a couple of times, and it's pretty much now wrapped up. But it's a large painting mural that reminds me of kind of a paint by numbers. So the artists (laughs) that created it, you know, know what colors they want, although they changed their mind at the last minute. In fact, when I was painting on it, I was going for dark colors. No, 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 I'm going to make no, no, we're going to make that lighter color. (laughs) Okay, so so he changed up my paint. But anyway, that's been going on for a couple of years now. They started it and um, they've actually been able to get, I think, 13,000 people already. Wow. Uh, right. Isn't that amazing? And yeah. so we have actually broke the world Guinness Book of Records for this. So they are going to be applying for that record, which is pretty cool. So um, it's kind of a long process. We've looked into it. So it may take a while. I don't know if we'll have the announcement of that before before stay to a day. A lot of events happening in August. But but we did find out that the mural, finishing it up, it, there are artists out of Cape Girardeau. They have a gallery called Painted Wren Gallery. And they're the ones who conceived of the idea. And they came to Michael Sweeney, who's our bicentennial coordinator a few years ago with the idea. And they just ran with it. And they've actually been paying for a lot of their expenses themselves, which has cost them quite a bit to do the traveling, although a lot of communities have started bringing them in and paying for you know, their gas and, and giving them a hotel room and that sort of thing. But it's been on their own time and dime and just a, a passion they've taken up to do this large mural. And it, it's going to eventually be on display, I'm told, in the uh, Truman Building in Jefferson City. And I believe it's going to be kind of in the cafeteria the main uh, large cafeteria within the building itself that has a large space. How big is it? Good question. I knew you were going to ask me that. I should have found that out. But it is, you know, I've just seen panels. So I'm trying to think how this size all together. Each panel's like uh, like an eight by eight foot panel. They're just they're huge. When it was at the Center for Missouri Studies a couple of times, it was just the panel brought, came in here. Not not two or three, but just one. So, but um, I believe there's eight of them. So I could probably do the math really quick and tell you that. But I need a calculator. <laughs> well, don't worry about that. Before we close, you mentioned before we started uh, chatting today that there is an event that ties in with Columbia's Bicentennial, which is taking place this summer, I think is the official July the 2nd to the 4th is when most of the festivities are happening. But it's something called Together for 21 Fest. Is that right? Yes. So the State Historical Society and the University of Missouri is collaborating around Statehood Day, which is August 10th. That's our Statehood Day. But the weekend before, we're going to have a three-day festival on the MU campus and at the Center for Missouri Studies called Together for 21, and it will be a free festival. We're going to have all the bicentennial exhibits that will be there, including our bicentennial quilt that's 
been worked on from every single county in the state. We won't have the Missouri Art Now up. That's only up until the 15th of May. But Joan Stack has another curated program that she's going to be bringing on this summer. I don't know the final details on it, but it will tie into the bicentennial. And I think it will also tie in a little bit to native Missouri as well. So that will be here. We will also be having some musicians. We'll have the Kansas City Latin Jazz Orchestra will be here. That's at Jesse Hall. We're also going to feature a young rap artist out of St. Louis and a blues artist. We're also going to have traditional music as well and try to really show all the different types of styles of music that have kind of come out of here in Missouri. And so that's going to be an event that will take place on Friday evening, and it will be free. And we're going to have more information, and, and people can follow us on Missouri21.org and really learn more about that. And we'll be announcing and putting out information as things get a little bit closer. Perfect. Well, we- We can catch up again later in the summer just before that event happens. But the Missouri Art Now show stays on display at the State Historical Society of Missouri's first floor art gallery on Elm Street in Columbia through May the 15th. After that, it is off to the Spiver Center for the Arts in Joplin through July the 17th, then the Hannibal Arts Council through September the 4th, and ending up at the Albrecht Kemper Museum of Art in St. Joseph through November the 7th. Beth Pike, Senior Strategic Communications Associate for the Bicentennial at the State Historical Society of Missouri. Thank you so much for taking time to chat today. Well, thank you. We invite everybody to come down and see us. Each year for the past five years, Jabberwocky Studios and the University of Missouri African Graduate and Professional Student Association get together to showcase some of the many arts that originate in the manifold cultural diversity of the African continent. And this year, thanks to pandemic protocols, Africa Fest is virtual, but that has opened up a whole treasure trove of options for the fest, as now they can go to the source. And here to talk about this year's program of events is Jabberwocky Studios Executive Director Linda Schust. Good morning, Linda. Good morning, Diana. Linda, you do such great work with young people in the community offering classes in dance and art and theatre and voice, as well as STEAM camps, science, technology, engineering, art and math, and even DJing classes. But once a year, you put on this big celebration of Africa. So tell us a little bit about the background to Africa Fest. The background, it originated because we have an African dance program at the studio. And because we're working with the immigrant and refugee population in Colombia, many of whom hail from African countries. So that was kind of a natural connection to us wanting to promote and make visible African culture. And it fits really nicely with the mission of the studio to use the arts to promote inclusion and equity, because it's a way of demystifying and de-exoticizing African culture and the cultures of the African diaspora and letting people meet people with from different cultures and see the cultures as interesting and valuable. Well, I mean, it does seem like, as I said in the intro, that having a virtual festival might actually have worked in your favor slightly. What have you been able to do this year because the fest is virtual? So, well, when we were planning it, we thought, hmm, Usually the biggest expense associated with the fest is bringing in artists. And in previous years, due to budgetary restrictions, we've only been able to bring in, we've brought in wonderful artists, but they've all been artists in America. Hmm. And so this year we thought, well, nobody's going anywhere. So we're not limited. We can take artists from anywhere across the globe and invite them to be part of the fest. So that's what we've done. So we're gonna, we'll have uh, performances from Kenya, Uganda, and Ghana. 
Well, tell us a little bit about the program that you have lined up. So each year we change the theme of the fest. And so our theme this year is our children. And we chose that theme because after a year in which I think everybody kind of feels battered and bruised, we wanted to focus on the future and the hope for a brighter future. And so the most obvious way to do that is to think about children. So uh, most of the performances this year will actually be by children or young people. Um, And the ones that aren't by children are themed around children. So um, we have a few local groups that will be doing dance. We have some slam poetry. We have some choral music. And then we have the international groups that will be drumming and dancing. And then the person in Kenya who's participating will be doing storytelling of a traditional fable from his tribal culture. Well, it seems like the headline performance this year is by the African Children's Choir. Tell us a little bit about them. So they actually perform internationally, and um, they're affiliated with an organization called Music for Life, and that organization runs schools for destitute children in Africa in a number of different countries. So the school we're working with is in Uganda. And once the children become part of that school and part of that program, the program guarantees those children that they will support them and make sure they have adequate funds to go all the way through their education and graduate from college. And so it's, I think they're in their 37th year or something. So they've put a lot of people through college in that program. And so the part of the way, one of the ways that they spread the word about the program and bring in some small revenues is that every year the children tour globally. So they usually have a United States tour. And I guess what happened last year was they showed up to do start their tour in the United States. And right when they got here, everything got shut down because of COVID. And they're still not touring. So actually, the performances that we're going to be showing are performances that they recorded last summer in the United States because they were not able to travel and do their travel schedule. So they stayed with host families and they used the time to record some stuff that they wouldn't normally have been able to record. So some of the fests that you can watch virtually will be a live connection to Africa and parts will be recorded like the African Children's Choir. Is that right? Well, full disclosure, we originally thought about (laughs) live streaming from Africa. And then we thought about not having any fest to show because something went wrong. (laughs) So um, the other performances were recorded specifically for the fest. But they will not be streamed live because it's really too risky, I think, to try to set up a live stream from an African country. That did seem very, very complicated. What about the local performers? Are they live or, again, have you pre-recorded everything and then stitched it all together? A lot of it is pre-recorded also because we worried about COVID because the space at VidWest where we're live streaming is very tight. So we didn't want to have a lot of artists and performance groups coming in and out all day long and sharing their breath with each other. So a lot of it is pre-recorded, although the slam poets, since there are just two of them, will be performing live. Well, let's talk a little bit about the two slam poets. I think, am I right? Is it Ian Kimi and Hope Schust? It is, yes. And I I love how ever since Amanda Gorman did her poetry reading at, at President Biden's inauguration, that it's really opened up the power of poetry to so many people and shone more of a light on how many young people are creating this fantastic poetry. So tell me a little bit about your slam poetry team and their performance of their poem, Ponder. 
So our slam poetry team is part of the Columbia Louder Than a Bomb competition, which is a, a chapter of a uh, national poetry competition that started originally in Chicago. And l- obviously last season, the kids were all ready to perform the co- for their competition, and then that was shut down. So hopefully we'll have a season this year. But in the meantime, some of our poets have continued to get together over Zoom. And so two of our poets, it turns out, Ian Kamei was born in the United States to parents who came here on scholarships and now live here in the States. So he's in the unique position of being Kenyan, but not really having spent much time in the home country. And then Hope Schuss, who's my daughter, is transracially and internationally adopted. So she was actually born in Kenya and spent the first year of her life there. And now she lives here with us. And so I'd heard them reflecting numerous times on experience, especially when the two of them are together, that they've had here in the States, where people from African countries will walk up to them and start talking to them in Kiswahili. And neither one of them speaks Kiswahili fluently. And it it really creates an emotional conflict for them. So I asked them if they could try to express some of what they feel through a poem. So that's what the poem Ponder is about. Beautiful. Well, Africa First 2021, Our Children, will be streaming on Facebook and YouTube this coming Sunday, April the 25th, from 1 till 3 p.m. And the streaming is free. You can access the stream by going to jabberwockystudios.org and click on the Africa Fest poster, which is halfway down the page. Linda, thank you so much for all the information and good luck with the event this Sunday. Thank you, Diana. This year's Unbound Book Festival started way back in January and over the past three months has delivered its myriad events week by week like a slowly unfurling red carpet, which tonight finally comes to a stop at the festival's keynote event, a conversation between two Pulitzer Prize-winning poets, Jericho Brown and Tracy K. Smith, who is also the 22nd Poet Laureate of the United States. And the conductor behind this three-month literary extravaganza, Alex George, is back with us to talk about this final event of the 2021 Unbound Book Festival. Good morning, Alex. Hi, Diana. How are you today? I am well. Now, I know it takes so long to plan and implement a festival, and then suddenly it's all over. Except this year, rather than being an intensive weekend of back-to-back and overlapping author talks with you dashing madly from one venue to the next, it's actually (laughs) been a leisurely quarter of a year. So how do you feel about now being on the cusp of packing all the festival toys away for another year? It's really strange. It's really strange because, as you say, normally we have 11 and a half months of insane work, all of which culminates in this extraordinary and wonderful weekend where everybody gathers, uh, all of the authors come and we all have a fabulous time. And then at the end of it, there is a sort of collective exhaling of breath and then we all go to bed for a week and then we start again. Um, but that is, as you say, that isn't happening this year. We've, we've been going since the end of January and putting on two events a week. And, you know, tonight's event is going to be amazing and it's going to be wonderful, but I'm sort of going to be, I don't know, I guess I'll get to the end of the click, leave meeting. (laughs) (laughs) That's it. That's all there's going to be. There's not going to be a party or anything like that. So it's a little strange, but, um, I mean, I've learned a lot this year. And one of the things is to be grateful for small mercies. And 
the fact that we have managed to do this at all in these difficult times is uh, a source of some satisfaction. The festival has looked very, very different, of course, um, but it has still been an extraordinary experience. It's been revelatory in many, many different ways. It's been inspiring and just wonderful. But, you know, it's different. <laughs> it's not the same as uh, having everybody come here and... Uh, uh, you know, one of my favorite moments always is on Saturday night after we've wrapped everything up at Stevens College and uh, we all go to Orr Street and eat pizza and drink beer. And uh, never does pizza and beer taste better than it does on that particular night. And um, I'll be sorry not to do that. But, you know, it has been a great year and we'll be doing it again, of course, in 2022. And then fingers crossed, we'll be back to the pizza and beer. Well, that is funny because at the end of Art in the Park, that is exactly how our festival ends too. We clear the park, put everything away, and then we would go to Shakespeare's Pizza and eat pizza and beer. And I always said the same thing. This is the best tasting pizza of the year. <laughs> so thinking, thinking to future festivals, how enticed are you by the idea of future Unbound Book Festivals being a bit of a hybrid of in-person and virtual? Are you like, nope, in-person only? Well, that I mean, that that is a decision that that we will come to in good time over the course of the summer. Um, I, I mean, it seems to me that it would be a shame not to take something away from everything that we have learned this year. Mm. Quite what that is remains to be seen. But, you know, I think that if we can find the people and the equipment to record at least some of the events that we do live so that we're then able to transmit them either simultaneously or later on, that to me seems like a good idea. I wouldn't know why we wouldn't want to do that. You know, the whole purpose of the festival is to spread the word to as many people as possible. And so any way that we can do that, it seems to me we, we sort of should look at that very carefully. So my hope is that at the very least, we'll, we'll be doing that. So one of the fun things about this year is watching people tune in from not just across the country, but across the world. And it would be nice to give them an opportunity of doing that again next year as well. Short answer, too soon to tell. Yes. <laughs> well, let's talk about this evening's event as it is the culmination of a three-month festival and tonight's speakers are huge names in the field of poetry. Would you give us a little potted biography on Jericho Brown and Tracy K. Smith? Yeah, I mean, and, and Jericho and Tracy were due to come to Columbia and sort of sit on stage at the Missouri Theatre back in April of 2020. And when we made the decision to cancel last year's festival, pretty much the first phone call I made was to their agent. And they actually share an agent. And I said, can we just reschedule for 2021? Because we were so excited. We were so looking forward to them coming. And happily, they were both free on Friday. So it's, it's, it's all worked out beautifully. They're just two wonderful, wonderful poets. Uh, now, Jericho has actually already appeared this year at Unbound. He was part of our Poetry and Prayer panel back in February. And um, anybody who saw that will, I dare say, be tuning in <laughs> tonight because he's an extraordinary presence. He just, 
to say he fills the room. I don't know what the online equivalent of that is, but his presence is palpable, incredibly smart, a wonderful poet, a completely infectious laugh, by the way, which you have to see and hear to believe. And just just a big hearted, big brained individual with much to say and all of it worth listening to. He, he's just he's a phenomenal poet. His book, The Tradition, that was published in 2019, as you said, won the Pulitzer Prize. He's, uh, he's won, I mean, more awards <laughs> for his poetry than you can possibly name and uh, many fellowships. And he's just, uh, he's a beautiful poet. And um, he's going to be just, he's just an extraordinary presence. And he's going to be great. And And Jericho will be doing, as as is usual, when we do the, the keynote, we have um, one author or poet interview another and so he will be doing the interviewing so he'll really be asking the questions and tracy k smith will be the primary featured writer tonight uh, and that means that she will actually before the the discussion starts as we always do with these things she will do a reading uh, of about 10 minutes or so of her work before they settle down into the into the conversation and Tracy, as you mentioned, I mean, she is, uh, was uh, the, the Poet Laureate of the United States, and she has also won a Pulitzer Prize, so not too shabby. Um, she also, uh, I mean, she's just, uh, she's also written a critically acclaimed memoir as well, Ordinary Light, which again, won many, many awards and was on many of the best of lists for that year. And so she's one of these people who can do absolutely everything. And again, just a fabulous writer. And one of the fun things and something that I've learned over the course of the last several years doing Unbound is watching poets talk to each other is very, very interesting because they just they, they they their brains are wired a little bit differently to the rest of us. And they they communicate in a very interesting way and they talk to each other in a very interesting way. Uh, we We very often choose poets to be the interviewers in these situations. So we had, for example, back in 2016, we had Mark Doty interview Michael Ondaatje, and Zadie Smith was also interviewed by poets. So, so we we like to uh, do that because we, you know, poets do think in this in this, this slightly off kilter way, which often leads to absolutely fascinating conversations. So, yeah, it's just going to be extraordinary and. Don't ask me what they're going to talk about because <laughs> I have I have I was no idea. Ask you <laughs> uh, and we always say, you know, we don't prescribe at all any kind of subject matter. They are just going to take it where they're going to take it. It's going to be like sitting around, you know, a fire with them and listening to the, to the two of them talk. We've had some success in the past of making the Missouri Theatre a relatively cosy and intimate space just with those two chairs on the stage. Uh, and it's going to be, you know, we're going to do our best to make it a similar kind of of, uh, of feeling uh, this evening. So you have no hand in the arc of the conversation. I guess you say, well, we'd like to talk for this many minutes or not even that. Is it just like go until you finish? <laughs> No, it's, no, we do. We do say, and they they want to know right. <laughs> how long do we have to talk for. Uh, but literally, that is it. I've said, you know, I'd like you to talk for this long, and then I'd like you to take questions for this long. But other than that, it is entirely up to them what they talk about. Tell me the background to putting these specific two poets together. 
just because they both had the same agent and that was suggested? Or had you seen them interact before? No, 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 not at all. I mean, they know each other. Um, and it's always fun to watch people who do know each other have conversations because there's just a different level of of understanding and of intimacy and uh, and they you know sometimes you're sort of you get swept along and have to sort of concentrate to keep up but really it was as simple as the the programming committee we we create these wish lists of dream guests and you know Tracy K Smith has been on our list for a long time and Jericho has too and one of the questions that we always have is well and and we we had decided to ask Tracy to be the keynote and then the question is well who's going to interview her and there was Jericho's name and we just said well let's see if he'll do it and he agreed and so that was that was how it how it kind of worked it's not, nothing too scientific but it's just a sense of knowing that the, the chemistry that these two people are going to bring is going to be extraordinary. I wondered and you, you kind of answered this question I wondered whether it was really a free-ranging conversation with both people in effect, interviewing each other or just chatting because they are you know, equally huge names. Both have a Pulitzer Prize. But it is, you said, it is Jericho is interviewing Tracy. It's not well, in the, quite a conversation. In okay. Yeah, well, in, in, in theory he is, but, but, you know, knowing the way that these things work, it will be a conversation. Um, I think it just means that if, if it ever goes quiet, then it's on Jericho to come up with, <laughs> right. ask another question. But, but I dare say that very quickly they will, you know, any notes he's made will, will probably get thrown away and the conversation will take on its own momentum and uh, it's going to be, it's going to be amazing. I know we touched on this in an earlier conversation, but this year's Unbound has been pretty heavy on poetry, which is a literary genre that generally has had a smaller audience than fiction. Remind me again, why why was this the year of poetry? Well, I always think that every year at Unbound is the year of poetry because for some reason, maybe it's because I'm not a poet, um, the poets are the people who linger longer in my mind, uh, when we have all packed up and sort of look back on previous years. Um, and I think it's just because, it, you know, it's it, personally, it's so alien to me. I'm used to people reading out of books and and things just being prose. And there's a magic to poetry, which I have certainly learned to appreciate over the last six years that I didn't have before. It helps that Gabe Freed, who is our poetry guru, is brilliant and knows everybody and always comes up with these incredible, incredible poets. You know, some of them are incredibly well known, like Tracy and Jericho and Mark Doty, I'd mentioned, and Marie Howe. We've had some, you know, amazingly well-known poets, but also one of the things that Gabe does so well is to also invite new up-and-coming poets who are just as talented but just haven't been around as long. And it's a wonderful opportunity for us to all hear them at the beginning of their careers. And then it's fun to, after that, watch subsequent books come out and watch their acclaim grow. So it's, it's, you know, it's a wonderful combination of all of these things. And what we always do when we select our poets is... It isn't actually just about the quality of the poetry, although obviously that's of critical importance. It's also about their ability to deliver it well. Um, you know, I always say, you know, poetry at Unbound is never read, it's performed. And we always make sure that the people who come 
they really do perform it and the words really leap off the page when they speak them out loud and when they're coming from the, the mouth of the person who wrote them. It's an entirely different experience to reading it on the page. And I think that's one of the really intoxicating things about the poetry readings is how the, the alchemy that happens uh, when you have the person in front of you reading their own words. There was a lovely quote from Tracy. It was in an interview she did for PBS's American Masters podcast. And she says, I think poetry is beautiful because a good poem can't be built of shoddy, overly familiar, easy, binary language. It's nuanced. It's counterintuitive. It's language that requires you to slow down and listen, which is such a lovely thing to think about in our frenzied time when we try and do everything so fast do you find your heart rate lowering <laughs> during a poetry session yeah i think i do i think i do but i also you know it's hard work um you know i listen very closely during the poetry reading and so i do make a point of of trying not to be doing anything else like chopping an onion or <laughs> whatever it is over just just before dinner uh and so i will i will try and just sit down quietly and listen but you're absolutely right about uh and and she was right of course about what she said about the language and i was talking to my wife about this last night actually um i love to when i when i read a book of poetry my preferred method of doing it is to read it out loud Mm. rather than just reading it on the page because so much work you know there is never a syllable that is not there for a good reason and the the attention to detail in these poems in all, all good poetry is is phenomenal and very often when you read it out loud is when you get to hear all of those nuances that sometimes get lost otherwise and again i think it slows you down as well Right. So how do people watch this evening's conversation? It's, I believe it's on YouTube and Facebook. You don't need to pre-register anything, right? You can just click on a link and be there. Yeah, you don't need to pre-register. And that's what we've been doing all year. So the, the simplest thing to do is just to go to the website, which is unboundbookfestival.com. Click on the link for tonight's event for the keynote. And then there are two links right there on the page. And one says to watch on YouTube, click here. And the other one says to watch on Facebook, click here. And that's it, it's as easy as that. And it'll also be available to watch after the event as well if people can't make it at seven o'clock tonight. As are all of the other panels and conversations that have happened this year. Those are also all still available online in perpetuity. Um, I don't know. Uh, probably until someone asks us to take them down. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Well, after three months of conversations with poets, writers of fiction and nonfiction, discussions on the art of the sentence, healthcare poetry, math and literature, and a whole lot more, the 2021 Unbound Book Festival reaches its exciting conclusion tonight with a conversation between Pulitzer Prize winning poets Jerrica Brown and Tracy K. Smith. And you can watch all of that on YouTube or Facebook by following the links on the unboundbookfestival.com website. Alex George, thank you so much and i do hope you get the chance for a bit of a lie down before you start on <laughs> next year's festival <laughs> thanks diana And that is it 
for another week. As I am now double vaccinated, I am off to the theatre this weekend, and it is strange to think this might once again become a regular activity. I hope I remember how to behave. All the Speaking of the Arts episodes are available as podcasts, which you can hear at speakingofthearts.transistor.fm or you can also connect through the KOPN website at kopn.org or catch us on Spotify. Thank you to my guests today, playwright Andrew Black, Beth Pike from the State Historical Society of Missouri, Jabberwocky Studios Executive Director Linda Schust, and maestro of the Unbound Book Festival, Alex George. Thanks, as always, to guitarist Yasmin Williams, whose song, Restless Heart, opens and closes the show. You can find more of her music on Spotify and on her website at yasminwilliamsmusic.com. Finally, thank you so much for listening. I'll be back next week with more peeks behind the arts curtain. Until then, stay arty, mid-Missouri! Missouri!